the latter, looking back to the Old Testament, because he's pointing to the truth that all of God's law is grounded in God's love. And we see that clearly throughout Scripture. In particular, there are a couple of Old Testament verses that the Israelites would have known and clung to. The first is Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you want to look there. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is what they called the Shema. And this was a passage of Scripture that every Jewish home would quote out loud that they would recite every morning and every evening of every day. It was that important. Listen to what it says, beginning in chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Recited by every Jewish home, every day, every morning, and every evening. That important. Really centering it on the, the love of God towards us. And the love that we have to Him. Now, the other passage that they would have known well is Leviticus. A couple of uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Go to verse chapter 19, verse 18. It says in verse 18, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But here it is. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's kind of like the, the golden rule, isn't it? Do unto others as you would have them do unto to you. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are two Old Testament truths that ground us in, in love that, that they would have known well. We know that's the case because of what we see in the life of Christ. If you would, turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is speaking in this passage. He's actually responding to a question being posed to him. This is a familiar passage that we have read before. The, passage, the, the, the question is this. Teacher, speaking to Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the, in the law? Now listen to what he says based on what we just looked at. And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind. Deuteronomy 6.5 repeated every day in every Jewish home. But then he goes and he says, this is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's the other one. Leviticus 19.18. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So the point here is whether you heard it from what Jesus taught or whether you go back to the Old Testament, what you'll see is that the law of love has, be, has existed from the very beginning. But Jesus taught his disciples a new view of this old commandment. It can be seen in the life of Christ as well as the life of those who follow him and John will describe it in his gospel, this new view of the old commandment. Turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And let's look at what Jesus says, giving us a new view of this old commandment. Verse 34. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even 
as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have this kind of love for one another. Do you see what Jesus did? He gave us a new view of an old commandment. He changed the standard by which we measure the depth of love that God calls us to. The command of love is still there. But instead of loving others as we love ourselves, we are called to love others as Christ loved us. Now Jesus becomes the standard by which we are to measure our love. That's the new view of the old commandment. Now, I don't know about you, but I, when I think about that, that's a game changer, right? Because my love always has a selfish component to it. There's always something that's in it for me. But the love of Christ is altogether different. It's completely selfless. And we see him teach and also demonstrate to us aspects of a love that I probably wouldn't possess on my own. He loves his enemies. He blesses those who persecute him. He considers the needs of others as more important than his own. That would not have been in my original definition, according to my standard. Would it have been in yours? So Jesus comes along and gives us a new view of an old commandment. And that's his point. What's true in him is true in you when you walk in fellowship with the light of Christ. But notice that there's a progressive nature to this change. Look at verse 8 in 1 John. Second part, it says, uh, on the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him. And in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. You get the idea that there's a process of of transformation going on here by by the grammar of that verse. You you compare it back to verse 5 that we looked at last week when it says that the, the love of God has truly been perfected. We talked about that has been being a past event with a current reality. It is perfect within us. And it is that perfect love that transforms our imperfect love so that we are more closely becoming like Him as His Spirit works within us. And that darkness changes to light. It reminds me of that passage in Philippians that we looked at when we studied that book together. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's an ongoing process until the day we meet the Lord face to face. You see, the love of Christ transforms our life to be more like Him. And when we see that love, we know, we have assurance that we are His. And John seems to want to really magnify this point by taking that truth and then contrasting it to that which was said by the false teachers. Look at verse 9. It says, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Then go to verse 11. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John is saying you cannot claim 
to have fellowship with God without the evidence of loving fellowship within the body of Christ. John will go on in this letter to explain to to those that he's writing to that there were those false teachers who were among them, but they'd gone out from them because he explains to them they were never one of us. Instead of promoting unity, they created division. So the reason John is writing this letter in the first place is to encourage those who remain in the church, but who are confused by the false teachers. And he uses some strong language, doesn't he? He talks about how they hate their brother. I don't know about you, when I hear that terminology, it makes me think of bitterness and anger and and unkind words. And, And I think that's true. But in the context of what John is teaching us, I think there's something different here. I believe he's describing a relationship that is driven by self-interest as opposed to Christ's example of a self-sacrificing love. In other words, these are people who are for you as long as you support them. But the life of Christ has shined a new light on the law of love. And that's not what it looks like. The selfish pride of the false teachers is not what it looks like to walk in the light, in fellowship with God. And so important is this law of love that John says that those who claim to walk in the light, but they do not possess this Christ-like love, these people walk in darkness. They are blindly leading others. Because God's Spirit is not guiding their life. This is really important to understand. I want you to to listen closely to this thought. I believe hatred is just as contagious as love. It's the quality of your relationships within the body of Christ that determines which one has infected your life. Hatred is just as contagious as love. Is the quality of your relationships within the body of Christ which determine which one has infected your life. Now, I want to pause here and, and give you a, a little reminder that as we are reading this passage, we're probably wondering, okay, who are these false teachers? And, and we are imagining in our mind who who they might have been, because they're somewhat mysterious to us, right? The, the unknown. But I want you to know very clearly that they were not unknown to the reader of John's letter. They knew very well who these people were. So John's not writing to help these people identify the imposters. The imposters have made themselves known. Instead, John is writing to give the reader an assurance of salvation by the intent of them examining their own heart and seeing the the characteristics of a a Spirit-filled life. And so when you and I read this text together, we need to make sure that we're not looking at that description and seeing if it applies to someone around us. Because the fact of the matter is, we need to look no further than our own heart. That's the point of John's letter. 
the reason John speaks in such extreme terms, darkness and light, love and hate, is because you cannot hide that which ultimately exists in your heart. It will be exposed in none more clearly than in your relationships with one another. Which is the reason behind the affirmation in verse 10. Look at that. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. See, when the light of Christ guides your life, his love will rule your relationships. When the light of Christ guides your life, his love will rule your relationships. The first thing that we need to to see is that the the love of Christ is evident when we abide in the light. And I want you to think about that in the context of what we've already looked at in John's letter so far. When you abide in the light, what becomes obvious in your life? Sin, right? Remember we talked about how Christians are people of confession. The reason that's important is because aren't we more likely... To love others when we don't see ourselves as better than they are. When we recognize that we are in process as they are. Recipients of grace as they are. Objects of God's forgiveness as they are. That's one of the reasons that abiding in the light of Christ is a prerequisite to experiencing the love of Christ. The other reason is because we can only give to others... (laughs) out of the experience or the fullness of what we have come to know ourselves. Let me give you an example, an illustration to describe what I mean by this. You might want to hire me to be a tutor for you in calculus, right? But I want to tell you up front, that's not a good idea, okay? Because the concepts of higher math, I just don't get them. They make absolutely no sense to me. You need somebody like Dexter, He's a math major. He's a math genius, okay? You need somebody like Dexter because what's going to happen when Dexter is your tutor is he's going to teach you out of the things he's already learned to be true. And the same is true for us when it comes to our love for one another. Apart from Christ, when it comes to love, we have nothing to offer. Our love is tainted with selfishness. And, and similar to what it would be like if I was to try to teach you calculus, I'm just making stuff up to, to make it seem like I know what I'm talking about, but the truth is I don't have a clue, right? But when we are caring for someone out of what we've already learned to be in true in Christ, then that's when it really happens. We give out of what we've experienced ourselves. And when that's not true in our life, there is inevitable conflict in our relationships. See, a love for others that is not grounded in Christ's love is unsustainable. Because the only love I have to offer apart from Christ is laced with selfish interests. The fact of the matter is, in my flesh, I'm only going to love you as long as it's good for me. But when my love flows out of a heart of what I've first received from Christ, now that's a whole new depth and dimension to the love relationship that we share. 
Christ-like love is what builds unity. It's what is rich in forgiveness. It's faithful. It loves mercy. And in the end, it brings glory to God. Why? Because that love originated in Him. When this love is what guides our life, John says there is no reason for stumbling in us. Now, to understand what John is saying here, I want you to to think about what is happening in this church. Is there stumbling going on in this church that John is writing to? Absolutely there is. There's all kinds of stumbling and confusion that was created by this division. The false teachers are stumbling. Verse 11 says that they can't see where they're going. And neither can those who are following them because they're being tripped up as well. In a few days, we're going to take that modern-day night backpacking trip. And one of the things that we'll do is talk about etiquette on the trail, right? And one of those things of etiquette on the trail is if you're in front, you always need to warn those behind you when something's in the way. Because inevitably, if all you're doing is thinking about yourself and you step over a rock, the person behind you won't see it and he's going to stumble over it. And and when you pull that branch back, you want to make sure that they understand that it's fixing to fly back if they don't put their hand up and take care of that same branch. And so you alert them. You think of the person behind you and you say, look, there's a branch and they grab a hold of it and then everybody stays safe. John is saying, if you are grounded in God's truth, motivated by Christ's love. There is no cause for stumbling in you. Everybody stays safe. Not only do you avoid the obstacles of discord, but you prevent others from getting tripped up as well. Abiding in the light helps you see. Walking in the darkness causes you to stumble along with everybody else that is following you. Last week, the main point of John's message as we talked about it together was to understand the assurance that we gain from the evidence of our obedience in response to God's love. Remember? We talked about how walking in the same manner as Jesus has less to do with conforming our actions and more to do with conforming what? Our heart, right? Our heart of obedience, that trust that God knows best, and His way is better than our way. And I want to tell you, ever since I've prepared that sermon, all throughout this last week, as I've faced temptations in my life, that's the question I've asked myself. Do I believe that His way is best? And am I going to follow Him in this decision? That's the heart that I believe God wants us to cultivate. And this week, I don't know that it's all that different. Once again, John wants us to know That we have eternal life. That's the point of him writing this letter. And this time he's telling us that we know that we are abiding in Christ when when the love of Christ is evident within us. With that in mind, I want us to to consider this morning some of the qualities of that kind of Christ-like love. As an assurance that when we see them evident in our life, that we belong to him. The first is this. A Christ-like love is sacrificial. If you want to turn to Philippians chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. This is the kind of love that Paul is speaking about when he's writing to the Philippians. 
He says in chapter 2, verse 1, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Well, how do you do that, Paul? He answers it. Verse 3, by doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Notice how the pairing of the protection of unity within the context of a Christ-like, self-sacrificing love. This is a love that is marked by humility because the primary motivation is not what's best for me. It's what's best for the other person. Instead, this is a love that looks to serve the needs of others as more important than my own. Another way to say that it is a Christ-like love is an others-centered love. So the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Am I connected in the community of faith enough to see the needs of others and then do I care enough to do something about it when I do? Am I connected enough and do I care enough? Those two really go hand in hand. They both have to exist. Because if you're not in fellowship with the body, you can't possibly know what the needs of the body might be. And this has to be go, go beyond what we do on, on Sunday morning. Because that's just a passing acquaintance. And, and people are not going to open up their life to you when all you know about them is their name. If you're lucky. Right? That's why I wrote about what I did in the back of the bulletin. I would encourage you to read it. Because I think in our world today, we are going in a thousand different directions. And very rarely do we understand the importance of what we do together as a family of believers. And how necessary it is to encourage each other towards love and good deeds. That's why the passage says, don't forsake your own gathering together is the habit of some. But why? Because we need to get together and to love and encourage each other towards love and good deeds. We need to be purposeful about building meaningful relationships. But even that's not enough. Because just because you know doesn't mean you care. You see, a sacrificial love first cares enough to know. And then it cares enough to do something when those needs arise. And that very often is at a personal expense. The point here is that sacrificial love that we see in Christ is rarely convenient. It usually costs you something. But that's the love of Christ. Because it costs Him everything. And so when that's what's in you, that's what comes out of you. A sacrificial love. Another characteristic that's that's closely related to, to sacrifice is compassion. My definition of compassion is the willingness to enter in. I don't know if young David McCartney is here this morning. I think they're out of town. But he and I had a conversation about this this last week as we were talking about the story of Lazarus. Talked about that Smallest verse in the Bible when it says Jesus wept. We just asked each other, why, why was Jesus crying? Why did he weep? Was it because Lazarus, his friend, died? 
Probably not, because Jesus, of all people, being God incarnate, knew that what was ahead of him was better than what was here on earth. And he would have been joyous about that life in store. So he wasn't crying because he lost a friend. What it says in that passage, if you'll look, is that that Jesus saw the people around him that he loved weeping. And then it says, he wept. He entered in to their suffering. The people he loved were hurting and he was hurting with them. That's what compassion is all about. The the willingness to enter in. There's a passage in, in Romans chapter 12 that captures this idea. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Listen to what Paul says. In verse 15, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty or proud in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Be, be humble. See, Christ-like love requires us to live outside of our own comfort zone and to enter into the lives of others, to weep with those who weep. To rejoice with those who rejoice. So when we look at our life, do we have that assurance of our salvation because we see that sacrificial love of Christ within us? Do we see His compassion flowing out of us? And then finally, this may be the most difficult, do we see a love that is patient? A love that is patient. It's difficult because I've determined that my way is usually the easiest, fastest, best way to get something done. Patience requires that I defer to to someone else. Namely, to God in His timing and in His way. Patience is that quality that allows me to love those who persecute me. Many of you have seen the the movie 42 about Jackie Robinson. I haven't seen the movie, but I did read a, a biography lately. And if you've seen the movie, you probably remember this scene. When Jackie was called up uh, by Mr. Ricky, the owner of the baseball team in the major leagues, that uh, was a, he was a believer. And he was taking a bold step of faith because Jackie Robinson would have broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball. And this was a big deal. So he had Jackie come to his office one day. And it says this, when Ricky, this is the owner, asked Jackie if he was up to the job, he wasn't talking only about playing great baseball. He knew Jackie could do that. What he meant, he explained, was that if Jackie was to be become Major League Baseball's first black player, he would be in for a tremendous amount of, of abuse, both verbal and physical. Jackie said he was sure he could face up to whatever came his way. He wasn't afraid of anyone, had been in a number of fistfights over the years when anyone had challenged him. But Ricky had something else in mind. I know you're a good ball player, Ricky said. What I don't know is whether you have the guts. Ricky knew he meant something dramatically different from what Robinson was thinking, so he continued. I'm looking, Ricky said, for a ball player with guts enough not to fight back. And as you know from Jackie's story, he did endure tremendous abuse and never once fought. And he made an 
impact that was global, of world proportions. Because one of the attributes of a Christ-like love that is patient is self-restraint. The ability to not return evil for evil. That kind of love can change the world. And if you abide in the light of Christ, you see that quality come out in your life. Sacrifice, compassion, patience. Qualities of love that will not survive in the darkness, but absolutely flourish in the light. And remember, John is writing so that you may know you have eternal life. And so what he's asking you to do is to look in your heart, examine your heart, and see these qualities of a Christ-like love within you. And we need to be okay with the fact that we're in process. So some of these need work, right? Maybe you're not self-sacrificing like you need to be or as patient as you should be, right? Or as compassionate as we need to be. I think about that in, in our world today. And, and compassion is one of those things that's easy to, to side skirt. Because we can give ourselves a false impression that we care and that we're entering in. Because we'll use technology. When somebody's going through a rough time, we'll drop them an email. Or send them a text message. It eases our consciences. But we've kept ourselves protected from those who are hurting. And God calls us to enter in. To walk right alongside them. And to demonstrate love by hurting with those who hurt. So when you go, I want you to take some time this week to examine your heart. And look for these qualities. And and in John's mind and in his heart, my heart for you is to, to be able to recognize these things in your life. And know that you belong to him. And be encouraged if there are things that need to grow, that God is patient. That's part of his love. And that He continues to perfect in you what He began in you. And that you can come before Him with a humble heart and say, Lord, I want to be more patient. And that prayer in and of itself tells me that you belong to Him. So seek the Lord to to cultivate these attributes so that they too can be an assurance in your life that you belong to Him. That you're a child of the King. That's why He's writing this. To point these things out so that you can see them in your life and know that I am His. And I can grow in these things and be even greater assured of my faith and my salvation as these things flourish in the light of abiding in Christ. That's my prayer for you too. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the beauty of your word, the light that it shines on our life, the promise of your salvation and the hope that we have in fellowship with you and with one another. I pray that we protect that, that we preserve it, that we promote it, that we seek diligently to love you with all our heart, mind, and strength. And that we don't love others just as we love ourselves, but that we consider that new view an old commandment and that we love just as you loved. That we are people of sacrifice people of compassion, that we are patient in our love for others. May that be a reflection of who we are within this body of believers called Melanie Park Church. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who loves us dearly. Amen.